Well, good morning, church family. Happy Labor Day weekend. A long weekend for most of you, so more energy, right? Yeah, okay, all right. (laughs) Hey, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you're new with us, I especially want to welcome you to the Parks Church, um, to our Sunday gathering. Uh, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and we are making our way through First and Second Samuel. And last week was week one, and so we'll, we'll be picking up week two uh, today, verses 19 through 28. And uh, the resources, we ran out of resources a couple of weeks ago. These are just First and Second Samuel journals. They have uh, the, the copy of the text and then some uh, places for notes. There's no commentary in this. Um, um, the Holy Spirit's going to fill the commentary in on this in your life. That's what we want. And so um, go grab one of those. These are a resource for, for our church. And so go grab one of these. We, we just restocked them downstairs. I think they're at the bottom of these stairs uh, right here. So, so you can go grab, grab that. All right. I know you just got settled and sat back down. But in the honor of reading God's word, stand with me. We're going to read verses 19 through 28 this morning. <clears throat> It'll be on the screen behind me as well. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their houses at Ramah, and Elkanah knew his wife, uh, knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. This is the word of the Lord. You, you may hear a little muttering after I say, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, that is people typically responding back, praise be to God, or, or something like that, which is totally appropriate. You know, but I don't know that that's ever been said. So people just respond back in, in that way, for those of you who are like, this is kind of new to me. All right. Um, so where are we here in 1 Samuel chapter 1? Uh, last week... Um, I described in starting the books of First and Second Samuel, really they're one book. So if I ever call them the Samuels, that's, that's like um, they're, they're together. So the books of First and Second Samuel um, begin a transitionary period in Israel's history. And they're transitioning from a time of the judges to being ruled by a king. They're searching for a king. They're looking for a king. They're asking. They will ask of the Lord, give us a king. Um, but in between that time that will come in 1 Samuel and where we are is like what I described as kind of this gray middle zone. It's kind of this, this gray area that's kind of ambiguous as they're, they're pivoting from one era that, that, that they have known for a long, long time to a new one. And Samuel obviously is going to be born here in that transition is not going to bring about clarity. It's not going to bring about um, any level of like 
clarity on the confusion and kind of this disjointedness that's happening and this disunity that's happening in the nation of Israel. In fact, it just kind of intensifies. And I, I argued last week, I said, I think we find ourselves as the capital C church, right? The people of God redeemed uh, through Christ Jesus in a transitionary period, right? Not, not, not exactly like what we're having here from Judges to, to, to Kings, but in many ways, just culturally speaking, we had a global pandemic, and anytime you see that historically over just the nature of history, there is a transition into a new era. There, there have been new eras ushered in with like the Industrial Revolution and things like that. However, there is always a group of people kind of caught in the middle, and let me just encourage you, we're caught in the middle uh, of a transitionary period. And so the question is, how do we live faithfully as the people of God individually and as a church in that in-between kind of gray, middle, disorienting time. The word of God is not, thankfully, the word of God is not silent. First and second Samuel, I believe, speak very clearly to that. Um, but first Samuel, the beginning of it, was an interesting start. Right? You, you, you kind of think, surely it's going to start with like introducing somebody prominent, somebody powerful, somebody who just kind of comes in and is like, okay, I'm going to take us through this confusing gray middle zone. And we thought, we, we almost thought at the beginning with Elkanah, the way it's set up in verses 1 and really verse 2, that might be him. And then what happens? Er, pivot. It makes a hard left turn. Left turn to Hannah, a, a woman who is barren, cannot have children, a woman who is in deep pain, in deep anguish, a woman whose identity and purpose are all confused, whose pain is really at the forefront of the beginning of these verses in this book. And we're like, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? And here's where I want to caution again, like I did last week. We have to be careful not to treat the word of God like an owner's manual. Like, you know, we just read a, a list of rules and regulations and check this box and don't check that box. We have to be careful not to exclusively read the word of God also just as a book of doctrine, right? And, and the Bible forms our doctrine, obviously, right? And what I mean by exclusively a book of doctrine is just, this is how I live. You know, the Bible must be treated for what it is. The Bible is a story, written by multiple authors, inspired by one Holy Spirit, right? And it's God's story that he's inviting us into to clearly see him, to clearly see what he is about and what he's doing. It's the story of God's redemption all over all of time. That's what the Bible is. And so he's inviting us in. That's why I love teaching narratives like First uh, and Second Samuel. But the Bible's not just inviting us in to, to see who God is. I think in many ways the Bible, as written as a story, is also meant to invite us in to say, this is what it looks like to be human. This is what it looks like to live a life in a broken and fallen world that God is ruling and reigning above, but this is what it looks like. And so when I see Hannah at the beginning of chapter one, I just see the heart of our God, the good father, right? Showing us, listen, this, we know God's not disconnected from the pain and the reality that so many of us have faced and maybe are facing right now. And he's like, listen, I'm a God who's in that mess. I'm a God who is sovereign over it all. And so watch how I interact with that. And so uh, as we even unpack this text today, I want to be clear that, that Hannah is not the center of this story. God is the center of this text. We'll talk a lot about Hannah. We'll talk a lot about Elkanah. But God is absolutely at the center and everything will gravitate around him. And so 
we left off last week with verse 18, and it was just kind of this abrupt stop where Hannah was laying herself out, like lamenting before the Lord her pain, everything, right? She hadn't eaten. She was fasting. She, she, she uh, was, was, was lamenting before the Lord, and she goes to uh, the temple. She goes to, to this place of worship, and there the high priest sees her, and she's praying, and she's laying out her soul. She's bearing her soul before the Lord, and Eli, the high priest, right, the, 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 the dude who is the chief spiritual leader of Israel at that time, looks at her, and what does he say to her? He goes, how long will you be drunk? How long will you, will, you, will you drink the strong drink? And she's like, uh, Eli, wake up, bro. This is my translation. I'm not. Don't cast me off as a worthless woman, she says. And then Eli wakes up, right? He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I'm, 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 you know, he didn't apologize in the text, but he's like, wait a minute. And then he blesses her. He blesses her. And here's what's interesting about Hannah. And I didn't make this note in the 9 a.m. service. But here's what's interesting about that moment is Hannah knows what to reject from Eli, right? You drunk woman, that label, right? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, pr- I'm pouring my heart out before the Lord. And she also then knows what to receive from Eli. And that's Eli's blessing to her. Eli gives her a blessing there in, in, in verse 17. Go in peace, and God of Israel, grant your petition that you have made to him. So he, he like wakes up to his senses, and Hannah goes, okay, I'm going to receive that. I'm going to receive that the God of the universe has heard my petition. And what happens to Hannah? If you have your Bible open or the notes, look back at verse 18. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. She's talking to Eli there, okay? Then the woman went away, ate, and her face was no longer sad. So prior in the text, the emotion was she's not eating. Her face was sad. She was weeping. Now, because she's met with the Lord, received this blessing from the man of God, now, guess what? She's eating, and her face is no longer sad. Why? Because God's answered her prayer. She's pregnant. You don't know that yet. There's been no illusion to understand that God has interacted with Hannah in any certain way other than Hannah is confident that the Lord, the God of the universe, has heard her prayer. And so that changes everything. Changes everything in her. And now we get into our text today. Right? Kind of with that cliffhanger. Is Hannah going to become pregnant? Is God going to answer her? Is it going to be wait? Is it going to be no? What what is the answer going to be? If the answer is yes... You remember Hannah's prayer? She made a vow, right? Lord, if you give me a child, if you see fit to give me a child, what what will she what she say she'd do? I'll give the child back to you. Is she going to stick to the vow if she gets pregnant? Like we have all these questions waiting and marinating. But I think one of the most important things to recognize in the text today is what's found in verse 19 and verse 28. Verse 19 and 28. And if you have that before you, it's the same word. In verse 19, it says this, Then they rose early in the morning on that same day, the scene that we talked through last week. And they what? Worshipped. Now go down to verse 28. And he, now that's talking about Samuel, did what? Worshipped there. So you see the bookends to this text? Worship. And I would argue, like I did last week, that all of this text in chapter 1 is about worship. It's about our response to God. Our response is when things don't go the way that we had planned. Our response is when the diagnosis comes down. Our response is when things go better than planned. All of our lives are made up of these little bitty sequences of responses. And here we see a response. And the response is verse 19, worship. Verse 28, worship. But let's look at what happens in between. Eugene Peterson 
He wrote a great commentary on 1 Samuel that says this about worship. He said in a world in which God is the primary reality or center, okay, worship is the primary activity. In worship, we cultivate attentiveness and responsiveness. There's responses to God cultivate because if we live by mere happenstance, looking at what is biggest, listening to what is loudest, doing what is easiest, we will live as if God were confined to the margins of our lives. But God is not marginal. God is foundational and central. The person who lives as if God sits on a bench at the edges of life waiting to be called on in emergencies is out of touch with reality and so lives badly. I love Peterson, right? Like, the journey this morning is none of us as believers, right? If you're not a believer, you're just kind of peering into this. Our goal as believers is this. We don't want to live badly. We want to live lives not with God on the margins, but with God on the center. Now, here is a lie that you can push God to the margins. You don't have that kind of power, right? You can't do that. God is at the center of everything, whether you acknowledge it or not. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to put God at the center and acknowledge that fact and go, okay, am I living in light of that? That's worship. Being attentive and being response-filled toward that fact. God is at the center. So that's the question this morning. Is God at the center? And I think what we see with Elkanah and Hannah here through this journey in this text this morning is you're going to see God clearly at the center through some different things that they do and participate in. But remember, who's the center? Not Hannah. God is. So let's look at this. Verse uh, 19. The first thing we see is worship through consistency. Consistency. Um, the, ba- the cultural backdrop for 1 Samuel is found in the book of Judges, which is in your Bible. The very last chapter, chapter 21, verse 25, sets that. It says that in in those days, meaning the days that we're talking about right now, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Again, last week I said that could probably be the tagline for every culture, but particularly for ours, like it is definitely true of us, right? People did whatever was right in their own eyes. So we, in when we look through things in our own eyes, through our flesh, if you will, we will never worship God as the center of everything. We'll put ourselves there. We'll put someone else there. We'll put our kids there, which we're going to talk about here in, in a little bit. We'll put something else there to depl- depl- just replace and, and, and dislocate God from his rightful place. But with Elkanah and Hannah, what we see is them constantly putting God right back in that place for them. And the one of the ways that they do that is they are constantly worshiping him. There's consistent worship in them. Look at verse 19. This was the same day that, that uh, Eli, or the, the next uh, day that Eli rebuked her. That next day, they worshiped before the Lord, okay? Then fast forward a little bit to verse 21, and then what do we find Elkanah doing? Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. Over and over, something repeated in 1 Samuel will be that the people of God keep showing up keep showing up in the places and spaces God has ordained for them to worship him. Now you say, what, Kyle, what are those spaces and places? Well, in this particular instance, the place and space we see is Shiloh, right? Where, where, where the tabernacle, the temple was, at, it, this will be replaced by Jerusalem, but right now it's Shiloh. They keep coming up there year after year. There is consistency. Now, however, I want to point out here, I think that that year after year consistency is evidenced by a day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month devotion to Yahweh first. 
I think this is just evidence that Elkanah and his household worshiped God every day of their lives. And it was evidenced by their constant and habitual pattern to keep showing up in the places and spaces God has for them. Believer, is that true of you? That there is a consistency to your worship. He's like, how do you know that? How do you, how do you know that they just weren't like once a year Christians who just kind of are once a year folks that just went to, to Shiloh once a year? Well, I, I don't know that, but I do know this about human nature, that inconsistency doesn't breed consistency. And something we see in 1 Samuel is that they are consistent in showing up and worshiping God faithfully. That proves to me a consistency in their day in and day out lives, Right? Consistency in gathering. I know I'm preaching to the choir on a holiday weekend. Trust me, I understand that. But this is an evidence of deeper worship and devotion happening every day, I hope, happening every day in your life. And this is just simply a response going, I want to be with my faith family to come together, to culminate in worship to God, right? This is the peak of that iceberg, if you will. But there had better be substance underneath it. And the reality is, hear me, the reality, if there's not substance underneath it, one, this will have very little effect on your life, if I'm being honest with you. And what we have found historically over time, this will just give way. What was consistent will become inconsistent and not valued because something else will replace God being the center. But that is a daily, weekly, monthly thing in our lives. Second thing, verse 20. We're just going to go through the text. Sound good? That's going to form our, our talk this morning. In worship, we see with Hannah. Um, look at this. Um, in Elkanah, this is the end of 19. Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Here we go. There's going to be a pivot here. The answer is here. Now, anytime you see the Lord remembers someone or something, it's not because God forgot, Okay? Because like, where'd I put Hannah? Where'd I put her? Okay, yeah, yeah, her request is over here. That's not our God, okay? He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's all of those things, like all the time. But at this exact moment, God moves. And when it says he remembers, when it says God remembers, it is God's action on behalf of his people. This is very clear action-oriented language. And so God acted on Hannah's behalf in verse 20, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. We don't know that time period. We don't know if that was six months later. We don't know if that was a year. We don't know that time period. But at the right time, at due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And here it is. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. We spent 19 verses, 19 verses getting into the drama of this story, right? Of the Lord not answering and hearing but not responding maybe the way Hannah wanted. The roaring of Penina, Elkanah with his, his well-meaning words, right? But all this drama spelling out. And do you notice how quick the answer comes? Like half of one verse, God's like, boom, she bore a son and his name's Samuel. I think that's intentional. I think that's very purposeful in how God wants us to feel how he interacts with us as people in a fallen and broken world. How he's going, I'm aware of your pain. I'm aware of where you are. I'm aware of the emotions, but I want you to know how quickly and how sovereignly I can intervene. And it's in a moment. Like, think about salvation. Right? We're not justified, we're not saved over time if we prove enough to God. Thank God, right? 
We're not saved. God goes, okay, if you make it from peg one to peg 10, then you're saved. No, God saves us, justifies us, the Bible says, in a moment, in an instant, when you confess, when you repent and you turn to to the Lord through Christ, you are saved. But then what is the rest of our life after justification? A little thing called sanctification, right? Where the Lord is working on us and growing us more and more into the image of Christ. It's like that's the 19 verses in the one, right? Like that is what happens. And God goes, I'm aware of that. But I want you to understand that I am with you in that pain just as much as I am in that moment that I answer. There's a lot going on here in 1 Samuel. And also the naming of her son, Samuel. Names carried a lot of weight back then, and there is, there's some debate on what the, word, the name Samuel actually uh, means. Uh, the closest thing we have in English um, would be this, that I have asked the Lord for him. That's what, that's what the, the name means. Samuel in two parts is the Hebrew word El, meaning God, um, and, and the other Hebrew word ask. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that word for you this morning. Um, so it's this word, asked of God. Hannah is announcing with naming her son this, this is the one I have asked from the one who is God. And this emphasis of asking the Lord runs throughout this story in chapter one, doesn't it? Hannah asking, Hannah pleading. Literally, literally verse 17, when Eli answers her, gives her, her the blessing back, um, it says this, you're asking, you have asked. This is the actual translation that could be. May God give you the Samuel you've Samueled. May God give you the Samuel. May God give you the ask that you have asked from him. And Richard Phillips, a commentator on 1 Samuel, says this, wherever Samuel went and whatever he did, Samuel's name testified a great and important truth about God. Samuel would be a living example that, God, that when God's people humbly ask, the Lord hears and answers with grace and mercy. Did you hear that? If nothing else strikes you this morning from anything we do, whether it's preaching or singing or fellowship or prayer, whatever it is, may it strike you this. May this strike you deeply. That the God of the universe hears you when you pray, when you call out to him, when you confess your great need to him humbly. He hears you. I, I think we've just become like, that's great. No, it's the greatest. The fact that his ears are attentive to me, to you. And listen, his hearing isn't like, I hear you. His hearing is intimate. His hearing is perfect, right? You're a good, good father. You're perfect in all your ways. His hearing is perfect. So even your words might be communicating something. He's going, no, 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 I hear what your heart's saying. I hear, and he's going, I want you to bring what your heart's saying. I, I hear you. And listen, when we get a hold of that, that's where we walk out like Hannah, feasting and with our faces no longer sad because we're like, we've put it where it belonged. We've put our petitions, we've put our anxieties, we, our cares, all those things that we, we walked in so bound up with, wound up with, we put them before God who hears us perfectly. That's what we're doing this morning. That's what you do in your house when you bow your head with your broken heart and go, Lord, I'm just, I'm just here. And he goes, I hear you. I hear you and I see you and I will remember you. Now the answer may look different. 
But do you trust God? Do you trust him? That's worship, asking, hearing, and I don't have the throne, but trusting, trusting him. And don't you for a minute hear me up here saying, isn't this so easy? It's hard. It's hard. In verse 22 and 23, um, as we continue our, our survey of this land of worship, is that there was a profound unity in this passage. A unity particularly between Hannah and Elkanah, her husband, and the Lord. I told you last week, one of the ways in which the enemy is trying to divide um, the nation of Israel is by disunity inside the nation. Not from outside, but inside of it. And even more, in a small version of this, the enemy will try to come in and divide by disunity within the household, the actual households. And so what we see here is a picture of a unified household. Remember the vow that Hannah made? Lord, if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you. There's two people involved in this, right? Elkanah, he's like, that's my son too. Right? Like, this, that's, my, that's my flesh and blood as well. Like, how are you going to make a vow like that? But what we see here is not Elkanah respond like that. We, he responds going, no, 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 no. Do what seems right. Look at it. Do, this is verse 23. Do what seems best to you. I'm sure they discussed. I'm sure they talked about it. And they were on the same page. And he goes, listen, do what seems best to you. Can you imagine if they weren't on the same page? Like Elkanah going, you made what vow? You wrote what check? You know, you did, you, you did what without discussing with this? And actually, he had an out biblically. Numbers 30, verses 10 through 15. Check me on it. I'm not going to read it, okay? Ladies, in your Bible study, you'll get there, all right? And we'll let the ladies unpack that. Um, where a husband could go back to a vow that a wife made and say, eh, no. She was this, she was that. Elkanah doesn't do that. He honors Hannah. And there is a spiritual unity that they have together. And in fact, he gives her a blessing like this. He says, may the Lord establish his word. Like, may the Lord do his work in you, Hannah. It's like he's not just going, yeah, I'll go with it. All right, you made it. We'll, we'll go there together. No, he's like, listen, I want the Lord to establish his word. And so do what seems best to you. Um, let me pause here and maybe get practical for us for a second. There are many marriages and a lot of households here, people who are thinking about marriages. Um, do you seek in your household to share the same heart and action in worshiping God together? Is that something you intentionally seek for that kind of unity? Do you and your spouse collaborate around your family's worship? around your family's serving, around your family's giving, around how you'll, you'll spend your time as a family serving the kingdom of God. You say, well, my, my, my wife handles that and she just tells me what to do. Cop out, baloney. You say, well, my husband, he's the leader and he's da, 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 da. Do you collaborate? Are you together? Are you seeking the Lord together, asking him, Lord, what are you asking of us as a unit, us as a household? And listen, this is true no matter if you have kids or you don't have kids, if you have kids in the house or you're sending kids out. Is this true of you? You say, Kyle, how do we even do that? A great place to start is here. 
asking the Lord. Seems too simple, seems too trite. Lord, what do you want from us? I think some of us are really good at asking, Lord, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? What do you want from me? But how about those whom God has entrusted to you, whether it's a spouse or kids? What do you want from us together? One of the best ways for kids not to go, man, that's just kind of mom and dad's thing, is for them to be called into participation with you is to be invited in, to go, listen, this is our thing as a family. We want to worship the Lord together. And I think as men particularly, yes, I believe the Bible is true when it calls us up as leaders of the household, which just puts an, an additional awareness upon us that he is asking, that are we aware, are we keenly aware of the ministry and giftedness of our wives? Are we sensitive to where the Lord is stirring and leading them? And that begins, let me tell you, that begins by asking him, Lord, what have you, what have you shown her? What have you given us uniquely as a family? And how do we lean into that? Is there a sense of unified worship in your household with your spouse, with your family? With your gospel community, if you don't find yourself in that place, is there a unified sense of worship before the Lord? All right, let's keep going. Verse 24 and 25. Um, there is a radical, not just unity, that takes place here as they worship and keep God at the center, but there is a radical level, level of preparation and generosity that I think the writer of 1 Samuel is trying to illuminate here. Look at it in verses 24 and 25. It says, And when she had weaned him, and this is Samuel, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull. Now, in all the oldest manuscripts we have of 1 Samuel, none of them say a three-year-old bull. They all say, and some of your translations maybe say that, it says three-year-old bulls. So number three, like there's three of them, three one-year-old bulls that actually going up with them, an eaf of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought with Samuel, here's the consistency, back to the house of the Lord. Now they're coming back to Shiloh. Okay, so the first thing is Samuel is probably a, between three years old and five years old when he's returning back to Shiloh, okay? And it tells a little bit about the journey with Hannah. It says, when she had weaned him. So that means prior to that, right, he's not weaned yet. And, and so this may come to a shock to some of you. I have never nursed a child before, okay? Um, but I have been around three of them who have been nursed. And not only does it appear to be very intimate, a very connecting action, but it's also a very sacrificial action, right? One where you're giving yourself to this child at their demand with no repayment, right? I've never heard any of our three children say after nursing, thanks, mom. I've never seen any of them leave a tip after that meal. Um, <laughs> but she's in that kind of intimacy, that kind of closeness. And even psychologically, there is something that happens there. That the Lord is working in her. I'm going to have to leave this child. I'm going to have to separate from this child. And, and, and even think, I have a three, almost four-year-old. And I got to be honest, like right now with him, it's just getting fun, Right? It is just so fun to think like that would be the age where Hannah and Elkanah would have to walk with him to Shiloh to say, Lord, he's yours all of his days. 
Hannah, even more so, after nursing this child for all of those years to go, I, I, I'm creating this, it seems like a further and further dependency, further and further, this further class, and going, no, Lord's doing something where it's actually, no, I rightly want to hand him over. There's this intimacy and this preparation that's taking place, but not just with Samuel, but also with the things that they brought. Three bulls, all this flour, all this wine, this was an extravagant amount of things to be brought. Even if, even if she was just like, hey, this is just back pay over three years that I missed out while I was nursing him, right? This is still a ton of things before the Lord. And it's like they bring it without reservation, right? We, we don't think much in agricultural wealth, but imagine if the text read something like, and she brought with him $3 million and left them at the feet of Eli. We'd be like, what? It reads a little bit different, but it's that kind of extravagant. Why? Because Hannah understood something. Hannah understood what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. You can give that to me. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Here is what Hannah knew. Everything I have has been given to me. From Samuel to these bulls to this flower to this wine, everything I have is the Lord. So I am just actually giving it back to the one who gave it to me. Now again, don't you dare for a minute think I'm standing up here and going, isn't that so easy? Why don't you just do that? This was probably a war and attention even with her, but she's bringing them in faith to worship the God who's given them all to her. One commentator wrote this about it. He says, Hannah's giving of Samuel was not seen as a terrible sacrifice, but a deep joy. And I'm like, how? Because she gets that. She gets that fact. I have been given everything, the breath in my lungs, the power to conceive, all of these things I have been given by the Lord, and I am just returning it back to him. And then verse 25, as we, we wrap this up, then they slaughtered the bull. That's a if you're not careful, you'll miss that or just read it on a cursory reading. That's important because they're announcing something here. And what they're announcing is this. That bull was meant to be sacrificed for their sins. Hannah knew that and remembered to even approach the Lord required a cleansing of their sins. Even Samuel, it required a cleansing for their sins. That the only way they can come before the Lord, the only way we can worship is on the basis of God's mercy and grace, on the basis of us being covered. There's no other way. She wasn't justified in what she brought. She wasn't justified in the bulls and the flour and the wine. She wasn't even justified in bringing Samuel she was only justified by the covering of a sacrifice. Hannah knew this for her and knew this for Samuel, that even her best motives and her best actions still required covering. See Isaiah 64. Even our righteousness and all of our good works is but filthy rags, uncovered. See Jesus in all of the gospel. He is our covering. He is the one and the only one by which we can rightly worship God is through his covering. And this leads us to that idea of joyful giving. And I'm not simply talking about money here. I'm talking about so much more than that. I'm talking about whole life giving. Where you stand there like Hannah, giving her one and only son to the Lord. 
You see, this is the essence and attitude of all of our giving. I'm giving this back to the Lord because he has given it to me. You see, many of us say, I'm giving this to the Lord because this is what he's asked. If that's your primary motivation, let me tell you where that leads. That leads to bitterness. He's asked this of me, so I'm doing it. No, 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 no. You give because he first gave to you. And you're giving out of that. And I just think even for us, and we have so many here, so many parents, like what is our responsibility with our children? Our responsibility with our children is to give them to the one who gave them to us is to give them back that the responsibility of Christian parents is to prepare and train up our children to worship Jesus with their whole lives, that we demonstrate for our children rightly ordered worship by rightly ordering our lives and our household around the things of God and the people of God. That's our job, is to present them back as Hannah did with Samuel. However, too many parents, myself even finding myself wrestling with this, Find their motivation in worldly desires for their kids. I want my kids to be successful. Okay, yeah, what's the definition of success? Okay, I I want my kids to be happy. Well, if you live more than three years, you know that's not going to be the case, right? No, more than anything, here is our desire. I want my kids to be faithful. I want my kids to be faithful followers of Jesus whose whole lives are lived in radical worship and abandonment to him. That's it. And that's why the very last verse of 28 is so fitting. And he worshiped the Lord there. That's why Hannah could probably walk away with tears in her eyes. And Elkanah helping her along the way, going, that's it. That's it. That's what he was built for. That's what we were built for. Worship. And just as Hannah responded to God's gift of a son by bringing little Samuel to serve all his days in the tabernacle, so are we this morning to respond to God's grace in another son. It's not Samuel. It's in the true son, Jesus Christ, by offering ourselves as living sacrifices for the sake of his glory. That's Romans 12, right? Quoted all the time. What's worship? It's a living sacrifice. That's what it looks like. Hannah's putting that on display. And so this morning, we're participating and exalting and throwing our crowns at his feet, throwing our pursuits, our kids, our lives, our treasures at his feet and going, Lord, we want to worship you with all that we are because you're the center. You're the center. And so hosts, um, if you'd move forward to help us prepare for communion, I'm going to pray a quick prayer for us. And uh, we're going to grab the elements of communion and take them. And here's what I want you to pray while others are getting it and you're even walking this table. This is a confession of the centrality of Jesus Christ in your life. You're coming and getting the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. You're confessing that through Christ is the only way of salvation. And for some of you, maybe that's a first-time confession this morning. I invite you to take communion with us. For others of you, this is a reminder, a weekly reminder as we gather around the table and fellowship together that Jesus is at the center of it all. King Jesus is the one that we draw near to. And so I'm going to pray for us, bow our heads, and then our host will lead us. Heavenly Father, you made us individually and as a body, a faith family. And you have redeemed us You've redeemed us of our sin through the death of your son, Jesus Christ. We now belong to you. And so, God, I pray that we might offer our whole lives for your praise and for the service of your glorious kingdom. 
And so, Lord, I pray as we come and we get these elements of communion, we sit back in our seats. Holy Spirit, speak to our ears. Illuminate the lies that we have believed, but more than that, illuminate the truth of the gospel. Illuminate Jesus. Let us see him clearly. Let us reorient our lives where we don't treat him as marginal, but we treat him for what he is, the center of it all. We love you, Lord. Lead us and guide us in this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.